What's your secret sauce? As a small and micro-sized business, the most important thing you can do is engage your potential customers in a way that sets you apart from the competition. It's your secret sauce. If you don't have the recipe for it, you'll just look like everybody else in your space. Left Brain Right Brain Marketing has the recipe. Focusing on the needs of smaller businesses, Left Brain Right Brain delivers everything you need to build a great brand. So if you're ready to start serving up your secret sauce, give us a call at 503 561-3647 or check us out online at lbrbm.com You know, aren't there enough things that cost an arm and a leg when you're running a business? There's really no reason you should be spending five grand or more for a website unless it's doing some pretty whiz-bang stuff. With Squarespace, you don't have to, even with some whiz-bang. With plans starting as low as 12 bucks a month for a personal website, Squarespace has a library of professionally designed templates to start from with easy-to-use tools that let you customize your site to fit your brand. So get that site going today. Just go to youdon'tsay.net, look for the Squarespace logo on the homepage, click on it, and when you check out, put in the code PARTNER10, again, that's PARTNER, one zero, you'll save 10% off your first subscription on a website or a domain. And if you need help with your site, drop left brain, right brain marketing a call at lbrbm.com. Squarespace, it's the shortest, most cost effective distance between here and success. This is Drew Zagorski. You're listening to You Don't Say Thanks for That. And don't forget to follow and review us wherever you listen to podcasts or at you don't say.net and share with your family, friends, and everyone else you know. So, here's the story. You just moved into your home in a quiet, middle-class neighborhood. After you get settled in, you're sitting on the front stoop watching the family across the street. The kids are playing in the yard while Dad and Mom are doing some gardening. Every once in a while, the little girl calls out and runs up to her dad, who has a kind of Elmer Fudd look to him, but with a mustache. He swoops her up, tosses her into the air, giggles and sue. All in all, it's really a pretty beautiful scene. The next Saturday, you're sitting in your living room having your morning coffee looking out the window between the articles you're reading in the Wichita Eagle. You see the neighbor's car in the drive while Elmer slash dad is decked out in a scout leader uniform, filling the trunk with camping gear and a little boy bouncing around, clearly excited about the camping trip they're getting ready for. A few weeks pass. It takes a little while for you to find a new church home. You and your wife settle on Christ Lutheran. It just has a great family feel to it, and everyone's welcoming, and there's plenty of other young kids for your kids to connect with. You arrive a little early for your first Sunday service as a family for some fellowship. One of the church members comes up and offers you a cup of coffee while introducing himself. It's none other than Elmer slash Dad. His name is Dennis. You tell him you're the family that's moved in a few weeks ago across the street from him. He acknowledges it, but doesn't really seem to want to pursue a long conversation about it. No biggie, he's probably trying to connect with other people this morning, and he's got his own kids to deal with. You get it. Kids take time and focus. But Dennis doesn't reach out to you at all as a neighbor. And you think, well, okay, he's an introvert. That's just how some people roll. You and your family never do connect with the Raiders across the street. Dennis eventually takes a job working for the city as a compliance officer. The only time he's ever really talked with you is the few times when he's issued you citations for your grass being too tall. Kind of an asshole, but whatever. You mow the lawn and shut him up. Maybe he's just not the type of guy you want to have a beer with. Down the road, you eventually move into a nicer home and neighborhood. Dennis just seems to fade into the past as most unremarkable acquaintances do. Not long after that, 
you settle in with your Saturday Eagle, and the front page is plastered with a story about a series of murders in the area. The whole city's on edge. It goes on for years. Nobody's ever caught for the murders, though they're attributed to a serial killer going by the moniker BTK, which stands for Bind Them, Torture Them, Kill Them. Then suddenly you wake up and you're in your 60s. Time flies. Your kids grew up. You got them off to college and on to their lives. And it's been 30 years since you moved into that Park City neighborhood in the 70s, and almost 20 since you moved out of it. You turn on the news and your stomach does a flip-flop. The face that greets you is none other than Dennis Rader, and the anchor's telling you that he is the infamous BTK killer. Now, for those of you who've read in on the BTK case, you know the sequence of events I've just presented is not in line with the actual timeline. I shared it as a hypothetical way to illustrate that for decades, Dennis Rader appeared simply as a regular guy, so ordinary as to be almost invisible. Someone you might find anywhere in any neighborhood, that is to say, this guy could be someone who lives right next door to any of us. Raider's run of terror spanned 30 years. As most criminals find out, in the end, they aren't as clever as they believe they are. Raider was busted by technology, ultimately. He sent a floppy disk to the police as part of a cat-and-mouse game. He asked them to tell him if it could be traced, and they should be honest about it. Of course, the police said no. The mouse was in the trap. So how did he get away with all those horrible crimes for all those years? What was going on in his head? How did he become so successful at stalking and murdering his victims? Dr. Catherine Ramsland is going to peel the onion on what makes a guy like Raider tick and how he realized success as a serial killer for so long. She teaches forensic psychology at DeSales University, where she's an assistant provost. She's appeared on more than 200 crime documentaries and magazine shows and is an executive producer of Murder House Flip and has consulted for CSI, Bones, and The Alienist. Catherine's also the author of more than a 1,000 articles and 68 books, including How to Catch a Killer, The Psychology of Death Investigations, The Mind of a Murderer, and she literally wrote the book on BTK, spending five years working with Dennis Rader on his autobiography, Confession of a Serial Killer, The Untold Story of Dennis Rader, the BTK Killer. Dr. Ramsland currently pens the shadow boxing blog at Psychology Today and teaches seminars on extreme offenders to death investigators and homicide detectives. So joining me today is Dr. Catherine Ramsland. Uh, Catherine, thank you for your time today and, and um, helping to unpack this really fascinating topic. Um, as a way to kind of lay the foundation for the conversation, you released a book Confessions of a Serial Killer, which was his autobiography, and interspersed in that, you kind of analyzed and put commentary into that story. Can you fill in some of the background into what brought you that project and your work with Analyzing Raider? Okay, well, first, just so no one, we don't assume anyone knows who we're talking about, um, Dennis Raider, the BTK killer was active in Wichita, Kansas from 1974 until 1991, and then reemerged in 2004 and was arrested in 2005. Um, so when he was arrested, a person uh, approached him who she doesn't want to be named, but she approached him about doing a, this kind of project. 
And he got involved with her and she kind of became the gatekeeper of anyone getting access to him. And then she never wrote the book. And I saw her on Facebook and said, you know, whatever happened to your Mm -hmm. book. And she asked, she knew who I was because she was using one of my books as a model, I guess. And she asked me to take it over. In the process, I had to be vetted by the attorney for the victim's family members mm-hmm. because they had an interest in this project. First, they didn't want it to go out at all, but they knew, of course, somebody was going to do it. They had evaluated several other people and turned them down because they didn't want a tabloid type of approach or just to have Raider do his own, own thing. So I call this actually a, a guided autobiography. It's not Raider just you know, going on and on about himself, as we've seen with some other serial killer books. Right. But it's really me. um, And one of the reasons the victim's family has approved me is because I wanted to use this to teach criminology, forensic psychology, and law enforcement some insights, you know, basically straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak, um, insofar as he was able to do any kind of self-analysis. So the structure was basically me selecting um, things for him to address, even giving him things to read and think about um, and, you know, TV shows that we were watching, et cetera. So that as we're building this book for him to kind of have his story out there the way he wanted it told, it's also being filtered through a professional kind of of, uh, structure because I was there to learn something, not just to be to facilitate a serial killer having his his day. So right. that's that's sort of how it all started. Um, the families had to approve me; they did. In the meantime, and this took a couple of years, back and forth, back and forth. Right. Well, that's my next question: was how long was this process? Well, the whole thing, start to finish, was about five years, five and a half mm, years. Okay, um, but initially. I had to deal with attorneys, et cetera. I had to write a proposal. I had to talk with some of the, the people involved in the victim's family trust actually gets most of the proceeds of this book and okay, any good. projects that come out of it. So um, that's part of what the deal was. And it was fine with me. I just wanted to get my expenses back essentially. So we played chess, Raider and I played chess mm-hmm. while we we're waiting for all this to, to get settled and, and all the, contracts and whatnot I had to sign for this and so we kind of got to know each other that way before we actually launched into the the work the work itself I'd say took you know three years which for me is really long I mean I write two to three books a year and that this was long I've even written biographies of, of people and this none of them took as long as this did okay so question as I read the book um the parts of it that are his autobiography seem like they're they're really not edited down i mean you and I, and you stated that deliberately in the beginning of the book that you wanted to present it and you know with as little i guess editing of his prose and syntax and all that kind of stuff as possible so i kind of thought that was an interesting approach to his storytelling and my question one of the questions i have is you would think there's a level of intellect for somebody who can do this for so many years in terms of how they can 
compartmentalized or cube. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, and their thought processes. But as I read it, you, and as anybody would read it, he's, he's not very good with language. <laughs> right. What what was that all about? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting thing we actually do find with some of these serial killers is this kind of street smarts versus book smarts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and Raider actually wasn't initially on board with me presenting his voice he wanted me to clean it all up mm-hmm. and do all the grammar right, correctly and spelling. And I said, you know, and I had to do some of that because honestly, you wouldn't have been able to, to understand very much right. otherwise. But but um, I actually persuaded him to let me present his story in in his voice that would include some of these errors or not. Because I actually think, and I did consult uh, forensic neuropsychologist and neuropsychiatrist to look at his handwriting and mm-hmm. some of his content. And I do think he has a processing disorder, a language processing disorder. So that would, of course, make it difficult for him in school as it did. He was like a C and D student, as he mm-hmm. as he put it, and you know, grateful to his teachers for passing him at times. But he did also make it through and got a college degree still. You know, I'm sure he he wasn't like the top student in the class, and yet he had when he had goals. I mean, he was pretty organized in terms of of being focused on on certain things that he wanted. None of none of the processing disorder stuff would have made any difference to that. Right. So right. he would have developed, and this is something even Ted Bundy has said. Initially, there's clumsiness, there's no mastery, but as you go along and start losing any, you know, feeling about it and really start perfecting your technique, um, you get better and better. So you would, I actually call this a a criminal intelligence, like you have emotional intelligence, EQ, I say there's a CIQ, a criminal intelligence that isn't really about an IQ that you would normally talk about in terms of, you know, abilities to succeed in school or business or something like that. He, he had an ability to succeed in his crimes while also carrying on uh, a fairly normal existence. Mm, okay. You know, to kind of start to dig into that, what contributed to his success? Let's kind of back up the the car a little bit. He started his run in the early 70s. And like you said, it went through into the 90s. During that time, police, uh, the technology and science that police had access to evolved tremendously, particularly in the area of DNA. And so certainly there had to be some things related to that just because the technology and science was not developed that contributed to his being able to elude capture or identification. The, the, as we get into this too, one of the other things you laid out in your book was this code system he had and how he used that to deliver messages and that sort of thing. So what about those aspects of who he was and how he stalked his victim, the the code system and, you know, initially kind of starting out, what do you think was part of his early success? Luck. As a predator. I think his early success was was luck because okay. he took some, he took a lot of risks. He likes to think of himself as being very careful and leaving mm-hmm. nothing to chance. But when you really look at his, uh, those initial 
murders. I mean, honestly, there were so many errors. He really was lucky he didn't get caught because the, the mailman was coming. Neighbors could have seen him. Right, he did it during the day. day. Uh, there were uh, there was snow on the ground, so mm-hmm. footprints and. He left something and he went back. I mean, there were so many things that could have easily gone wrong for him that didn't, that I would say luck played a big hand in that. The same thing with the next murder, which was the murder of Kathy Bright, when her her brother came in with her. Right. And they struggled over a gun and he shot Kevin twice and thought Kevin was was dead. And then Kevin ran. So once again. And then Kevin couldn't remember well enough what he looked like to be, really be helpful. So once again, that's that's a lot of luck playing into that. It really wasn't about skill. And I'd right. have to say, even until you know maybe his last three was was actual mastery involved in terms of the kind of thing that I mentioned with Ted Bundy, the sense of now now I'm going to keep control. And I think actually. I'd have to say the last four because the Nancy Fox murders, the one he thinks of as his, the perfect one. He had a process where it wasn't just like he would go walk up to somebody's home and check to see if they're there and then go in. He, he would, he would stalk victims for a little bit, right? He would stalk them, but not that well because, because he didn't even know there were three other Otero children that were off to school that mm-hmm. day. He didn't. Mm-hmm. And, and that's you, the first how can murder. How could you be a stalker and yeah. not know how many people are in this family? Right. How can you not know the father did not leave for work that day? How can you not know that they acquired a guard dog? I mean, these are things that if you're truly stalking, you know. So that's why I say when he says... I, you know, he took all this care to leave nothing to chance. I thought, well, no, you didn't. There's a lot of stuff that you should have known if you were truly stalking someone. Mm-hmm. But I think what happens is that he tended to fixate on specific aspects, which blinded him to others. I mean, we do cognitive research tells us we have this blindness factor, um, the invisible gorilla experiments, et cetera. That when we have this spotlight of focus, we tend to lose sight of things that give context to mm-hmm. it. So I think that's what happened to him is he got so focused on, on uh, Julio Taro and her daughter, Josephine, that he really only honed in on them. He thought of what he had wanted to do, and, he, and even his plan didn't work out because what he had wanted to do was kidnap them. He, was, he, he knew there would be a, another child in the house, the younger mm-hmm. one, Joseph Jr., so he's going to kill him and then kidnap them and take them off to his, you know, abandoned barn his lair. But, you know, they didn't have gas in the car, so he wouldn't have gotten very far. And and he just he didn't plan well, though he thinks that he did. And that's that's kind of the interesting part is that, you know, he's spent a lot of time in his fantasies about how this is all going to work and how he's going to make, you know, fulfill this this great sexual fantasy. and yet. None of the the things were in place for him to actually do that. And he didn't know. Also, he talked about when he was, you know, strangling them. It was harder than he thought. It took longer than he thought. His hands got tired. This isn't working the way he thought it was going to work. So he really wasn't that good at uh, what he was doing in the certainly in the initial year, because, you know, that was there were two incidents that year. And 
the Otero was four people and Kathy Bright was one. But even with Kathy Bright, he had to struggle with the brother. That what what I th- what I think is interesting in terms of at least the true crime that I've read into is he's got these really long breaks. The first few years, 74 to 77, he's pretty active. There's three or four murders in there. I don't remember the exact number, but then it's followed by breaks of eight years, five years. And then there's a 14 year stretch until he's arrested. What do you think accounts for those long breaks? And based on your conversations and interactions with him, I think the possibility exists that there were a lot more victims that we never found out about, right? No, because he would take credit for that because they okay. didn't know about three. And he he added them in during the in, interrogation. Um, one thing Raider wants is fame. Right. So to not take credit. The only reason he would not take credit for something is if is if um, there was some it was to his disadvantage. Right. So, for example, if he it were within the frame of the death penalty operating in Kansas maybe not, or, or in some other state where there was a death penalty. So maybe not. Um, But for the most part, he wants the fame and he wants the credit for it. Even when the police did arrest three men for the Otero murders, he immediately, he wrote a letter saying, he, no, they're, you're wrong. It's not them. In part, Mm -hmm. he didn't want them wasting his taxpayer money on a false investigation, but also he wasn't willing to give up credit for those murders. So no, I don't think the possibility exists is there's a lot more. There might be another one or two. I don't think there's a lot. And and in part is because he and he was stalking. I mean he, he gave me a list of 55 projects. So it wasn't like and he said that that it wasn't and, that and he stopped. Just to, for the audience projects is no, what projects he is projects is the um the yeah the word he used for yeah people with that he brought into his fantasy life. He might've seen them and that he would associate something with them. Like project Coleman was a woman who was selling a, a Coleman camper mm-hmm. kind of thing. So he would, he had a whole list. He had 55 in detail that he was stalking. And basically he said, you know, that the people who claim he stopped ha- have it wrong. It's not that he stopped is that he didn't succeed in, in mm-hmm. a, you know, and he did enter houses waiting for people and they didn't come home. Right. So he would have had a lot more victims had things worked out the way he wanted, but he always had these obligations. Like he had to call his wife or he had to be home or, he had to, you know, do get something done for work. So he had limited opportunities and he always had to plan them in a way that would, he could account for his time so that he'd have at least something of a of an alibi or be able to deflect suspicion with, well, I was already scheduled to go on this camp out or I was mm-hmm. already scheduled to go some and do something else. So he's always was very that's one thing he was very careful about is making sure that when he did uh, plan a murder, he was it was within a frame where he could make you know, he could get people to think he was doing something else. So those opportunities were limited, especially as he lost jobs and got different new jobs that didn't give him that kind of of um, mobility. Mm-hmm. He had a job that took him out of town, so that that was great because he had a lot of expansive time. Um, he had a job 
looking at surveillance systems. That was great because it helped him understand how to get in and out of houses. Um, but then when he was, you know, working in his own hometown as a compliance officer, that wasn't as great because very rigid schedule, um, lunch at home every day, mm-hmm. not a lot of opportunity to be out and about. And also his own life was changing. He was becoming a father. He had a son and a daughter. Right. He, he got very involved in his church, job obligations. So it it really had more to do with he was he was picking times where it, this all was working out correctly. So I don't I don't think the chances of him having a lot of and believe me, the police have sorted through everything, every mm-hmm. possible thing that it could have been, at least within the Wichita area. Obviously, he could have done something out of state. And that's, you know, unless he cops to that, we won't know. Right. So in terms of those long breaks of years, even, do you attribute any of that to his own, I don't know, self-control to be able to pick a target and actively go after it? Or or was it something as mundane as now he's got a wife and kids and they're raising the kids and he's busy with them and with work? What, what are your a, thoughts on that? It's a combination of both. He. I mean, he wasn't a compulsive killer. Right. No um, berserker mode or anything like that. Yeah, he wasn't devolving in the way we saw with Bundy and Dahmer, even um, with the escalation and the change in MO and whatnot. He wasn't doing that. Even look at the, the 10th murder and even the 11th planned one that didn't happen. You can. It's still all of the planning mechanisms are still in place in terms of it's got to be right. Like, even when he went up to to uh, murder the eleventh victim, he saw a construction crew outside, and he knew he only had the lunch hour to do it. So, okay, go home and mm-hmm. plan it for another day. That, that is the typical self control he exercised, and I he he absolutely wasn't. Although his murders were sexually compelled, he didn't have that kind of compulsive addiction to it the way. Um, you you might see in some of the others that we that we know about. Um, but he also kept a lot of souvenirs from his victims, and he would go what he called motel parties, <laughs> right? Where he'd go into check into a motel room by himself, and he'd bring his binding and do self binding. But he would bring these souvenirs in. Was that part of how he sated himself? You know, whenever he might have felt an urge to kill. Well, um, he he actually does say, had there been some outlets for the kinds of paraphilias he had, and paraphilias are, are sexual abnormalities of, of, of you know erotic fixation on objects or situations or people that would be considered abnormal in our society. So his motel parties, he didn't really take. I mean, he took victim objects and he kept them in his what he called his hidey holes. They didn't actually go with him to the motel parties. The motel parties were things like some of these Barbie dolls and maybe underwear he'd stolen out of a house. But but he had these cutouts for magazines mm-hmm. that he called his slick ads. And these women were part of his fantasy life. So he usually his motel parties usually consisted more of the kinds of, of bondage implements that that fed his paraphilia and then some of the slick ads and Barbie dolls and whatnot, more so than taking victim items with him. And in fact, he often would discard the victim items if he felt like, uh, you know, that maybe someone's going to discover them. 
Um, at one point, he had he had the idea of putting him in a safe deposit box so that so that he he'd uh, you know be able to get away with everything. But once he died, they discover it and and oh, realize Dennis Rader was the BTK right. killer. That was a big fantasy for him. Right. But he didn't actually like he didn't take Joseph Otero's watch on a motel party or something like that. Right. He might he mostly. I mean, he stole a lot of stuff from other houses that he entered without killing anyone. And some of those items he would use. Right. So that kind of leads me to this next thing with the compartmentalization that serial killers and other criminals do in their lives. Raider had an interesting way that he referred to that in terms, he called it cubing. Can you shed some light on that whole thing? Well, everybody compartmentalizes to some extent. I mean, mm-hmm. anytime you have a persona, you have a facade, you know, in order to to present yourself in a way that's not really true to you, that's you're already compartmentalizing to a little bit. Um, it's not a, a, like a multiple personality or dissociative identity disorder. It's simply the ability to move in and out of different identities and some offenders have really perfected this ability um, to the point where they have different moral codes in these various identities. Right. Um, so, so like they, like Raider can be the church, the president of his church congregation and, and believe in, in God. And at the same time be killing people. Um, that's two different moral codes that would clash if he didn't have a wall between them. But the interesting thing, the compartmentalizing, comes really from psychology and the idea is that you you're living in these various compartments that really are kind of separated from each other. I think Raider's idea of cubing is much better. And I think even Bundy actually described this without naming it this, that they're all there with you all the time. It's just a matter of you're moving from one face of the cube to another, giving it, given the circumstances and whatever you need. And the, the idea of, identity for people like like them is you know they're psychopaths so they already have uh, not deep emotional roots so mm-hmm. they're not deeply embedded in their, in any given identity they're embedded only in their own narcissistic needs so if if they now need to you know if they need to be the church president for for you know this thing they are that, and then they can immediately switch to being a thief or a serial killer or, right. you know, their father or husband or whatever they need in a given moment. They're ne- not deeply rooted in it. So he, he could easily slide to the next face of the cube, but they're all still there with him, still part of him. Gotcha. So I right. actually like his word better. First of all, it's easier to say and spell. But I think <laughs> that's it for sure is much better than compartmentalization does. Yeah. And I think that when you put it that way, yeah, it's easier to think of. I mean, just visually, you think of right. a comp- compartments on a flat surface. They're all together in that right. surface versus a cubing yeah. where it's totally by itself and more right. distinct. Yeah, it's funny because we... After I wrote the book, it came out and he he wrote to me, he said, Well, this is this cubing idea is really interesting. I said, Well, well, you came up with it. Yeah. <laughs> he said, No, I think you did. I said, I assure you, I did not. You did. Uh he yeah. called it cooping, C-O-U-P. Okay. And 
And then after, like he'd go back and forth in his in his spellings. But I said, it really, you're the one who really came up with this. And, and so I am giving him attribution, although it's a great concept. You're listening to You Don't Say. We'll be right back with our conversation right after this. Hi, Drew Zagorski here, and I got two words for you. Direct mail. To a business owner, those are two of the scariest words in the universe because they only bring to mind big dollar signs, little return on investment. Well, there's a better way to reach and stay in front of engage your customers, prospects, and cohorts. Now, here's two more words, constant contact. Yep, I've used them for years for my businesses, and the bottom line is this. It works. In fact, if you go to you don't say.net, you can sign up for my email and you'll never miss another episode of You Don't Say. For pennies per contact as compared to direct mail, I can reach and connect with up to 500 contacts. Yep, 500 contacts for as little as 20 bucks a month. Constant Contact provides powerful email tools that include a library of awesome design templates, list management and reporting, event management, polls, and more, as well as a website builder with e-commerce capabilities. So, if you're looking for a way to stay in front of your audience, Constant Contact is everything you need. And here, I'll make it easy for you to find them. Simply go to bit.ly forward slash YDS stories. Again, that's bit.ly forward slash YDS stories to start your free trial account today. So, uh, you know, the Q, the whole idea of cubing in your conversations with him and as somebody who's trained to be able to identify these things, did you see him shifting from one surface of the cube to the other in the midst of a conversation or interaction? I saw it in the letters a lot. And it was mm-hmm. interesting because when I had the neuropsychiatrist look at the letters, um, she she immediately spotted his ability to, you know, be talking some some dark thing he'd done to someone. And then all of a sudden, oh, it's dinner time. <laughs> like, what? Are you kidding? Um Or or say things like, um, you know, I I really shouldn't be, you know, I really don't like drawing this thing for you. But but then you see he spent many hours, you know, loving to be immersed in this. But I actually saw it in front of me at one point when I was in the prison. He didn't know I was coming. And so they were, and the way you do in this, in these super max prisons is, he's in a room and you're in a room and you, and you see each other through monitors. It's, it's not like what you see on TV where you have this glass and, mm-hmm. you know, little small divider between you. You're, you're really set apart. Um, so I was in my cubicle watching as they brought him into his and he, he's, you know, got the cuffs and the chains and whatnot. And he, he's kind of being, oh, what do you think? I'm Hannibal Lecter. You know, he sort, sort of mm-hmm. got this nasty serial killer face. And then all of a sudden he saw me in the monitor and, and like, whew, what, like total change. Oh, how was your, how was your trip? How wonderful that you're here, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So, so you could, whatever he needed to be for someone, you know, impression management was always, always key to him. He didn't know I had just seen this, him, them bringing him in. Right. So for, for him, it was, oh, how do I put on the best face? For her, and then I also saw it when I watched the tapes of his interrogation. And oh, before I mean, I should just say before I 
started working with him, I was already friends with the DA on the case. So she, you know, I've been, I've stayed with her. I, I knew her pretty well. So she gave me a lot of access to, to the stuff she had, which helped me stay objective in terms of seeing the many faces that Raider shows to people, as well as having the five years of correspondence with the other woman, um, other co- correspondence with other people. You can, I could actually see how he wanted to manage impressions in terms of who he was with or talking to or what the situation called for. Mm-hmm. So that was very interesting to see that complete switch very fast right in front of me, but I could see it in the letters very often. Mm-hmm. So the other part of this is in prison, just not just serial killers, but a lot of criminals are given the opportunity to do self-assessments. Talk to me about what you saw in his and what was revealed in those and what that process is all about. Well, you know, a lot of <laughs> it's funny because a lot of people send stuff to Raider to, you know, fill this out, do this for mm-hmm. me, blah, blah, blah. And some are kind of professional assessments. Um, and there was one time where I, an expert on psychopathy had given me something to give, you know, to give him. It was this like self-report stuff. And I said, well, really? They lie, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, he knows because he he's an expert in this. But so I gave I gave it to Raider, and he gave me back the answers. And I knew right away he was lying on some of these. Um, right. Like one was one question was, "Has anyone ever said anything bad about you?" <laughs> like, right. yeah, in your hearing, all the victim's family members at the very least. So he's but he put no, and I. I said, you know, I know you're lying. He goes, no, yeah. I'm not lying. To I'm looking at me who I am now. See the see the the way that right. works for him. Yeah. So basically, the whole test was void because he was answering only the way he wanted right. to answer, and it wasn't really truthful. So I had to tell the expert at this. You know, I'm not giving this to you to put into your database because I know he lied and and it's it's meaningless. Other things, like a couple of times people sent him stuff to answer, but he'd send me the answers because he wasn't going to participate in their study, but he thought it was useful for me. And again, because I had access to other documents and other perspectives, I could tell he was trying to get me to to see things in the way he wanted me to see them. Like, one, I think, was about his treatment of dogs. When he was with police officers, he wanted them to think he was, you know, the bad guy. So he's playing into their expectations. Mm-hmm. But he definitely didn't want me to think those things about him. So that skewed quite a bit. He was not happy to know that I had seen the interrogation tapes. So because um, he wanted a fresh slate, he wanted to be able to imprint upon my mind what he wanted there and not anything else. So those were very interesting things. Uh, I saw a variety of things with him and I gave him a few assessments myself just to, to see where it would go. You know, my mother was a psychologist and she was going to grad school when we were kids. So as part of her uh, student work, she would give us my brothers and sisters and I were her guinea pigs and we would take all these assessments and tests. And then when she was a student teacher, she would have her students come in and give us the same tests. And over time, it got to be that 
we'd done them so many times, we kind of knew how to answer. Right. And don't you think that's the same process that happens with somebody who's under a spotlight? Uh, well, he uh, didn't uh, have those Michael. kinds of tests. The only te- the only professional testing he had was for competency. Okay. Um, and the and the psychologist who evaluated them anticipated he was going to be also in the trial. But of course, Rader didn't have a trial. Mm-hmm. So there was never any state, you know, mental state at the time of the offense testing on him at all. Um, very little has been done with him in that regard. Okay. You know, he does some reading and of course he experienced some of the stuff I, I showed him, but he didn't have that kind of testing you saw with Dahmer and, you know, Gacy and, you know, where multiple mental health experts got involved. Raider didn't have that at all. So what are some of the things that, you know, from your perspective as a mental health professional and his behaviors, what are some of the things that helped him get away with this so long? Well, he he was clever about playing with expectations because he could have gotten caught a couple of times, which is one of the reasons I wanted to get him to talk about that for law enforcement mm-hmm. is because they operated on certain stereotypes and expectations. We have a lot of outdated ideas about serial killers floating around out there. And and unfortunately it affects law enforcement. Like there was one that there's no black serial killers. What? There's Mm -hmm. lots of them. But if that isn't conveyed appropriately in trainings of law enforcement, they, they will discount that kind of information when they, when they hear it. We saw that with the Baton Rouge serial killer. Um, So, there were, you know, nobody's suspecting someone who's a who's a Boy Scout volunteer, right? Well, mm-hmm. they should because yeah. he's not the only one. Um, not to say that we should suspect all people involved, you know, with with right. volunteer opportunities or anything, but you can't discount that if you're looking for someone. And this is one of the nights I think is for the tenth victim. They're looking for she's missing. They're looking. And they encountered this guy out there. <laughs> mm-hmm. At least look in the car because that's what you're supposed to be doing as law enforcement. It, don't don't just let the idea that he's a Boy Scout volunteer stop you from looking in his car. Right. That's, yeah. That's that part of it. Yeah. When you, he was changing his clothes, that's the thing that it just like. Right. What was the cop thinking? <laughs> that, that, that he's a, he's a, boy, a why he would not be what you're looking for as a serial killer. Right. That's the problem. The stereotypes set in, and Raider got a pass. Yeah. So, and the same thing would be if he's a he's a family man, a businessman, a church leader. Well, he gets a pass. We right. have to stop that kind of thinking in in law enforcement. We have to make sure they do they go all the way through on whatever they're supposed to do in their job and not give someone a pass. Right. Because serial killers show up in all kinds of, of places and be, and and we're constantly being surprised. We shouldn't be. We should always be anticipating an outlier, which Raider was. Right. But he's not the only one with a wife and family and job. He's right. not the only one who had, who showed a responsible set of circumstances in his life and also killed. So these are the things that need to be conveyed to law enforcement in their trainings, not the old stereotypes. Right. That that was the thing that struck me is he was so ordinary. If you didn't know what was on the other side of the cube, so to speak, 
He was so ordinary, you would never notice him. He was almost invisible. But you know what? The FBI agents always say that. They always say that when they're called in. Mm-hmm. He's probably invisible. They always say it. And still we get this idea that they're larger than life. Why? Because of TV shows. Right. Now, most of his, most of his, well, all of his victims really, I think, with the exception of the first one and the um, brother who he shot in the second, he targeted women. And what can you tell us about his development that led to that kind of a specificity in terms of a victim? As I said, he's an outlier. A lot of his developmental factors just just don't fit expectations. He was a you know the oldest of four boys in a family, intact family, both sets of grand, grandparents alive. You know, all American childhood, lots of running around on farms and playing with other kids, etc. So where did it come from? It, that's the mm-hmm. hard thing. And one of the things he posed to me was, you know, try to figure out my factor X. A lot of people mistakenly think Raider claims his factor X was de- a demon. He only did that for a very short period because his minister influenced him into, into accepting that explanation. That isn't what he thinks. Factor X is the unknown that is part of all serial killer development. And it's going to be different for each one, depending on who they are and what they've been exposed to. So we do know Rader had some head injuries. We don't know the impact on his brain. There was an MRI done at one point, but we don't, I don't have access to it. So I couldn't get it read. We were going to actually, um, get an fMRI done, but the whole state of Kansas essentially blocked us from being able to do that. So that was unfortunate because we had everything in place to be able to. I would like to know if there's something in his brain because we do find that in a number of these of these killers. They have head injury in their background. He didn't he was not abused, but he was humiliated several times by his mm-hmm. mother. So very little has been done on the role of humiliation in the development of the kinds of resentments and anger we see in the buildup in the fantasy life of some of these killers so that they, so that their sexual development merges with this, this kind of anger, right. resentment, and punitive um, kind of, of impetus. Raider had that and also the binding. Um, he loved being bound because it's, it sexually excited him. He'd, buy, he'd tie ropes around his waist and, you know, constantly imagine things like girl traps and, you know, dominating through bondage. So you take a, a number of these factors and merge them together. You don't have to have child abuse in his background or some of the other things that other people really insist should have been there. Um, you don't have to have that. You have to have perception. I mean, I think you could look at someone like Elliot Roger, for example, who was the Isla Vista spree killer in 2014. He he grew up with nothing but privilege. He had all kinds of privilege, but his perception skewed it to the point where he hated women because he couldn't get access to them. They wouldn't pay attention to him as the supreme gentleman he he thought of himself to be. So by the time he's 22, he's still a virgin. He hates He's, he's, and, he, and he didn't want just any woman. It had to be, you know, a tall, skinny, Caucasian, blonde, 
um, had to be the perfect woman or, or they just wouldn't do. So okay. he then killed a bunch of people out of this perception that they were responsible for all his failures. So, so I think that's a good case to demonstrate the role of perception. Has, it's not necessarily about being subjected to horrible circumstances or a punitive mother or you know, any of that. It's, it has to do in a case like Raider, who doesn't have any, any real psychiatric disorders or you know, major head injury that we know of, is perception. And the anger that builds and the sense of dominating that builds from how he views himself and his role in life. Right. So that kind of brings me to another question in some of the documentaries that I've watched on him, the clips from his court, from his sentencing the victim impact statements as they're being read out, he's sitting there and he's, he's weeping. And to myself, I think he's crying for himself because they don't, he, he probably feels like they don't understand him. This is just me projecting. Sure. Um, but then after, and he gets up to make his statement, he completely just shifts everything to compare himself to all of his victims. And to me, that was like, there's no remorse there, really. That It's just, I was a father. I, I, I had a daughter, you know, all of that sort of thing. Does that kind of tie into the same thing you're talking about, the perception? Or is this kind of a different well, yeah, nuanced well, piece of the pie? Yeah, well, you start with a narcissist. You have someone with arrested development. They're still pretty much kids who's the world centers around. So anything, you know, I'm sure he didn't even listen to the impact statements because all he was doing was thinking about how he can make them see his point of view. I mean, it was the same when he- Everybody else's fault. Well, it's not just their, I wouldn't say he's blaming them so much as you have to understand, uh, here's where we connect on this. I under, and, and, and any, I'm not going to say the tears are only for him. I, I know he regretted being being um, arrested and the kind of pain he did to his family to some extent. But again, it, what we do know, now he hasn't been diagnosed as a psychopath, but mm-hmm. I think he shows a lot of his signs. We do know that psychopaths they're in their brain development are not deeply rooted in emotion. They They have low EQ. They don't read emotion well in others or in themselves. They don't have a deep emotional commitment that makes them feel things. So we're looking for something in him that we're probably not going to see because you just don't see it in in narcissists because they're always thinking about their own self-interest. Their mm-hmm. self-interest come first all the time. I'll give you an example. When his daughter, after 10 years, his daughter finally gave an interview to a reporter from the Wichita Eagle. And she was talking about how painful it all was and how awful. And, and um, I said to Raider, you know, what, what he said to me was, did you see, I got my name in the paper. Mm. So I think that says a lot. Right yeah. There. That was the first thing that <laughs> yeah. popped in his mind was not, not her pain. Not the thing she said. It was, wow. I'm finally back in the press. Right. Then towards the end of the book, in the last chapter, Confession of a Serial Killer, which, by the way, I'll put links to these books 
in the the episode notes for listeners. But anyway, there was an interesting bit in there. Well, I think throughout, he kind of talked about wanting to talk to someone about his addiction, but he feared that if he did that, the police would be brought in and he didn't want to go there. And then at the end of your book and kind of the wrap up chapters, you talked about a, a, a program in Ukraine that allowed people with homicidal fantasies, including killers, to reach out for some counseling. Now, I don't know that anything would ever fly in the United States like that. But the interesting part of that whole thing was, I think the work that yourself and other people who work with these people to kind of understand what drives them and what leads them to do what they do is good work. And it's noble. And it's something that we all need to kind of get to the bottom of to understand. And then the other aspect of that, that I think you made this point in those last chapters of that, the humanization of these people, right? Right. Um, that they, they have done monstrous things, but underneath all of that, somewhere down at the base, there is a person in there, right? Talk to me about that. Well, and I think you'll see this also in interviews with some of the other killers that they converge very similarly on this. I know Ted Bundy said it, Dahmer said it, um, only a small fraction of their life is devoted to murder. So so they they should be credited with their good deeds too. This is their perspective. I'm, is that my perspective? Right. Uh, Raider talks about himself as a good person who did some bad things. Um, but went to my mind, if he thinks murder is when he felt most alive and he, and he identifies most with the fact that he's a serial killer and he wants that kind of, of fame and notoriety, that suggests it's the opposite. He's a bad person who did some good things. Mm-hmm. And he did. Casey was a very good neighbor. He, he was charitable. He dressed as a clown. In my book, that's a serial killer, but <laughs> we won't go there. Um, but he, you know, he entertains sick kids. He, was, he, he threw great parties. So the majority of his life, despite the fact that there are 33 young men or 34 that, whose lives he took, the majority of his life was spent doing normal things, even generous things. Um, so uh, they all make that point when they're talking that, look, when you really look at my bad deeds compared to my good deeds, essentially I'm a good person um, who has these proclivities that, you know, end up hurting people. You could say something similar about, you know, anyone who's not necessarily murdering, but, you know, cheating on serial cheaters on their spouses, for example, mm-hmm. would say the same thing. So there is a degree where this is all about a continuum of behavior. Um, and when I talk about humanizing them, I really, I really am meaning that many of the things they did is an extension of things that are essentially human, um, that they took too far. Uh, and here's there's some no, the, we're not, just to be clear that you were not absolving them of what they did. I'm not absolving it, them. I'm trying it's to just show, an understanding of, yeah. Well, we, you know, we have a tendency to say they're monsters, they're other, mm-hmm. they're not us. They're, and, and that's why I say I, that's what keeps us from um, being, ef- being effectively finding treatments, effectively training law enforcement, effectively approaching them 
through criminology and forensic psychology as if we keep dividing them off into this class of other monster, you know, vampire, whatever you want to call them, we're going to lose an ability to not, not necessarily reach them, but, but bring treatment to young people, young kids who are at risk for becoming them. Mm -hmm. We need to know stuff about them so that we have effective uh, ways to spot the, the cues in young people and then also do early intervention. If we constantly treat them as, as some, something that isn't quite human, uh, we're, that, that robs us of potential tools right. that will help us in the future. Right. And, you know, I think that's just to that whole point, using the terms like they're they're monsters uh it speaks to the sensationalism of media um and likewise earlier when i said raider was so ordinary he was almost invisible same thing is that's probably based on what i see and read right right um and the point is here that i think i was trying to make is this could be anybody's neighbor yes um and it doesn't mean that they're doing stuff that's so outrageous that they're easy to spot. Correct. And things can happen. Even with people, like you said, with him, he had a normal childhood pretty much, but the wiring gets a little messed up in there. And suddenly, you know, I'm a good person who did bad things. And I think the point at the end of your book really is to boil this down so that you can, like you said, be able to identify things and provide therapies and help for people when they're early in their life so that they don't become Dennis Rader. Yeah. And I, and I, I do know that the things I've just said are going to sound very hollow to the the victim's family members. Mm -hmm. And I met a number of them um, and to them, he's a monster. I understand why they don't want to think as, you know, more fully human. I understand why his wife wants nothing to do. His ex-wife wants nothing to do with this. So, but on the other hand, I also know, uh, and I've met a few relatives of serial killers, uh, daughters, sons, et cetera. And they still want to reach that part that they knew and loved. Um, So, but for me, it's really all about trying to understand from the raw data of these interviews, what can we do with this? That's useful. Not right. just, you know, being a voyeur on the development of a serial killer, but where in there can I use my professional tools to extract insights that will be of use for future treatment? Right. Prevent it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Catherine, as we kind of turn the corner and wrapping up our conversation, I want to shift gears. Okay. Um, we've We've talked about a lot of heavy stuff here. And, and so just to lighten, lighten the mood here as we close out our conversation, what's your favorite word? <laughs> Depends on the context. I don't know. I don't have a favorite word. What's favorite your word. least favorite word? I guess I don't approach words like that. I don't know. Okay. What turns you on? Uh, none of your business. <laughs> okay. What turns you off? Again. <laughs> okay. What so? What sound or so noise? I know it turns me up. Okay. Cruelty. Okay. 
I think there's nothing that makes me more angry than outright cruelty to others. Okay. What sound or noise do you love? Beethoven's Ninth. What sound or noise do you hate? Bohemian Rhapsody. (laughs) (laughs) I really hate the discordant tones of that song so much. (laughs) What's your favorite curse word? I'm really not going to say that in here. Okay. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Training horses. What profession would you not like to do? Cleaning septic systems. (laughs) If, If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Uh, We'll keep you busy up here too. Interesting. Okay. Well, Catherine, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to share a little time with you and have this conversation, especially during the holidays and carving time out for me to do that. Um, I will, as I said, list your books in the episode notes. And um, again, thank you for your time. I've, I've found it very interesting and enlightening and appreciate the work that you do. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate being on here. Sure. So this is Drew Zagorski. You don't say peace. Thanks for listening. If you have a story to tell, shoot me an email to info at youdontsay.net. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at YDS Stories. Thanks again, and see you on the next episode.